Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about classic TV show The Prisoner. With me, Bex. And me, Eason. First of all, we'd like to give a big thank you to everyone who listened to our recent episode about Arrival. We had some really nice messages from people and it's it's really lovely to know that people are listening and enjoying the podcast. Yeah, and we'd like to not only welcome fans of The Prisoner who have been watching it for a long time, but also people who might be watching it for the first time, having you know heard about it or thought, oh, this is a show I might want to get into. So this is our first bonus episode. Uh, as we mentioned at the end of Arrival, um, we recently had the great pleasure of spending an afternoon with Chris Rodley, the documentary filmmaker behind In My Mind and also the author of Lynch on Lynch, among other books. And Chris was somebody who we approached because last year, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner, he made a new documentary, which Bex just mentioned, called In My Mind, about him revisiting the interviews with Patrick McGowan back in 1983, which were originally for a documentary called Six into One, The Prisoner Files. There was going to be a rerun of The Prisoner on Channel 4. Channel 4 was a very new uh, network TV channel in the UK at that time. And to accompany the rerun of the series, a documentary was made. And as part of this documentary, uh, Chris Rodley was given the uh, rather... <laughs> unenviable task of trying to get an interview with Patrick McGowan about The Prisoner. How Patrick McGowan was very reluctant to talk about what any of it meant. He didn't like explaining things um, for, for various reasons that we'll get onto much further on down the line in the podcast. Um, the finale of The Prisoner was uh, had caused a lot of had caused a bit of a stir when it aired, <laughs> I think is uh, mild way of putting it and so he, he really didn't um, like giving interviews about it but somehow Chris was able to get him to agree to uh, to give an interview on camera for this documentary so he, he flew out to LA and the interviews did not really go according to plan <laughs> I think is another mild way of putting it fast forward all these years later and in 2017 uh, Chris has had a remarkable documentary filmmaking career. He's also uh, written several books, interview books with directors. And last year, he went back to those original interviews with Patrick McGowan and created a brand new documentary called In My Mind. In My Mind is a really remarkable film. It it chronicles those original interviews, which which have now been incorporated into this documentary for the first time. It involves Chris sort of discussing what happened at those interviews to an extent, what went wrong and actually how much it taught him, I think, about his interactions with Patrick McGowan and what the prisoner might actually mean as well. So he came back, he revisited uh, that material. There are brand new interviews uh, with Catherine McGowan, uh, Patrick McGowan's daughter, and it's trying to not bring some closure to the whole thing, but to talk a little bit more about what those interviews might have told us about Patrick McGowan himself and his relationship to the prisoner and the audience, um, his work ethic, how he thought about things. And it's a really interesting take on somebody who doesn't really, well, I don't think Patrick McGowan was known for giving many interviews. Certainly he, he rarely spoke about the prisoner in public afterwards. I think there are a few things which are actually shown in this documentary as well. But it's it's a fantastic look at uh, the original material which hasn't been seen and the new documentary it's really exciting if you're a fan of the prisoner or just the history of 
that whole era, I think, of uh, the ITC TV shows and, and how popular they were and actually how it also stresses how unique The Prisoner was. So since the Six Into One documentary in 84, Chris has made dozens of other documentaries, including documentaries on figures such as Donald Camel, Dirk Bogard, Johnny Cash. He's made many wonderful music documentaries for the BBC, um, series like Prog Rock Britannia, Jazz Britannia, and he's also moved from not only producing documentaries, but also he's directed many of these as well. In this bonus episode, what we've got for you is an interview with uh, Chris, which we had a few weeks back, and it's a first of a two-part episode. Um, It basically discusses, in my mind, Chris's huge interest and uh, love of the TV show, The Prisoner, as well. It talks about his insights into Patrick McGowan, and also it touches upon aspects of his own filmmaking career, and his thoughts on the impact that The Prisoner had uh, on the last 50 years of film and television. And it it has to be said that uh, given that one of Chris's other big interests is the work of David Lynch, uh, as it is with us too, you might notice that during the conversation we do also occasionally get into a bit of chat about, about David Lynch and about Twin Peaks. And that conversation really continues in part two of the interview, which is going to go out on our Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee podcast. And on one final note, if you have never seen The Prisoner before and you're watching along with the podcast for the first time and you haven't reached the end yet, you might want to think about leaving this episode until you have reached the end because we do talk about the finale in our chat with Chris and there's a couple of things in there that could be a little bit spoilerific. So if you haven't watched to the end yet, maybe come back to this episode a bit later (laughs) but for now enjoy our chat with chris we're delighted to be joined now by documentary filmmaker and writer chris rodley hi chris hi how are you doing hi it's lovely for you to join us pleasure now you're a pretty much lifelong fan of the prisoner yes and Many people who are listening may have watched your In My Mind documentary that's come out recently about your encounter with Patrick McGowan back in the early 80s, making a different documentary, and also coming back to the documentary again now. How did you first get involved in making the original Channel 4 documentary back in the 80s? Um, Actually, it's a bit of a sad story in that I I worked at the Institute of Contemporary Arts. I ran the cinema there. And um, I never really got on very well with the director. I never really did what I was told. I mean, I'd pretend to do it and then I wouldn't do it. Um, Anyway, cut a long story short, I saw saw the writing on the wall that uh, up ahead was probably the sack. Um, And I was standing on Finsbury Park Underground Station thinking, what? You know, what can you do? What what do you know about? What are you good at? What, what are you good for? Um, one thing I did know a lot about was The Prisoner because I'd been, a, you know, when I first saw it when I was like 15 or whatever, um, it had never gone away. Uh, and then Channel 4 announced that they were going to be showing it. They were going to be reviving it. And I thought, well, you know, you know, I'd written about it actually for a, a TV magazine called Prime Time and for Time Out. Um, I thought, well, you, one thing you do know a lot about <laughs> is that thing. It's very narrow, but my God, it's coming onto Channel 4. So um, I had to go to Paris to try and buy a film, a distribution rights for a, um, 
a film by Peter Brook on Carmen. Um, he'd made three versions of Carmen, um, th- a trilogy. I went to Paris because we, we distributed movies as well. Um, I didn't get the film. And um, so I went to a little bar called La Palette, which is just off Rue de Seine in Saint-Germain. I remember it very clearly. And I wrote what I guess is a treatment for a documentary. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just drank lots of beer. And um, it was a very cheap, lovely bar, still there, still exactly the same. And I wrote a five-page thing, which I guess was a kind of treatment, and sent it to Channel 4. Um, and it was kind of crisis management, really, out of desperation, to be honest. Um, I mean, I did want to do it. And I thought, well, OK, just do it, just do it. Um, they called me up within two days and said, come in. I mean, this is the glory days of early Channel 4. Yeah, long, God rest their soul. Um, and I went in and they said, well, we're going to make it. Um, but you don't know anything about television, do you? I said, no, no, I watch a lot of it. I don't know how to make it. They said, don't worry, we'll stitch you with a director and we'll stitch you with a producer and we're going to do it. Um, and so they stitched me with a company and a director. Uh, I was supposed to just do the interviewing. I was supposed to write the script and do the interviewing. Um, and so it, it just was so easy. And so I took a three-month sabbatical away from the ICA and went and made it, knowing nothing except about the thing, mm. not anything about the filmmaking. After I did the interviewing and all the awfulness with Patrick, which we may or may not talk about, uh, um, I went back to the ICA um, and then I got a call within a week saying we, um, from the director saying, you've got to come back, we, we don't know what to do with the material. Because I wasn't even supposed to be in the edit, just to generate the material. And so I went back, and luckily, because it was understaffed, I learned, you know, I learned a lot of things because there was no one else to do it. So they'd say, well, take this 35mm print from ITC and go and telecine it. And I, I didn't know what that was. And I'd say, what's a telecine? And they said, well, you know, you're just going to put it onto... And then I'd go to the telecine, and the guy would say, would you want to regrade this? And I'm kind of... It was pink, virtually, this print. It was really bad quality and they and suddenly they said do you want you know and i'm learning all this stuff like, oh my god you can bring life back into that film uh, you can do this you can do that um and i used to sneak in at night and do bits of editing even um not really really totally um out of my depth um and so it was like that it was a kind of fluke because in those days you could do that channel four were looking for you know channel four had a simple remit no an impossible remit but simple uh, make innovative television and get 10% of the audience share. Those two things don't go together. They never did. They never will. Um, and so the thing was, we're, we're up for ideas. You know, so any literally anyone could write. And if it was a good idea, it, could, it might even get made. I don't know if this was a good idea. It's just that they had the series and they thought, oh, great, we'll, what we'll do is we'll show it again and we'll show the documentary at the end. And the documentary will explain everything, won't it? <laughs> um, and so... Uh, I was lucky in that respect. Uh, in a wider context, I was like a child, of, a child of Thatcher, really. I mean, it was because that all happened because Margaret Thatcher you know, didn't all happen because of directly, but the context was she didn't like the BBC. She wanted to weaken their power. She was really behind independent, the independent, uh, a new channel being formed. And as much as we hated her and her politics um, and everything about her, um, we benefited from that because suddenly all these people who had never gotten their hands on make the filmmaking process got their hands on it um, I knew I mean I'd been programming films for seven years at that time I mean I was an independent independent film exhibition and distribution um, I saw lots of things that I thought oh god I could do better than that I'm sure but I never thought I'd get the chance because then if you didn't 
didn't go to the right school. I mean, it was only the BBC. Mm. ITV was impenetrable, but the BBC even worse. Didn't have the right education and you weren't the right whatever. You, you had no chance of getting in. So it was all sort of a bit like that, a bit sort of chaotic and no one was minding the store. And it, that was a sort of, you know, that was a, that's how it happened. How, lots of things happened. I mean, you know, 69, you know, if you get things like 2001, it's because no one's minding the store. Or, or if you get easy riders, because no one's minding the store. No one's confused and thinking, what, we don't understand what people like anymore. Oh, they like spitting on the American flag and, and taking drugs and driving around on bikes. They like that now, do they? Let's make that. Because they don't care about anything. They just care about making money. And if you can make them money by whatever you're doing, they'll, they'll say, no, you can do that as long as it's making us money. When it stops making us money, then we'll come for you. But mm-hmm. until then, everything's fine. So it was, a, it was a little chaotic. And I think the film looked like that. Um, but you know, in those days, uh, you, you were asked, you were able to do what you wanted to do, as long as it wasn't like anything else. So I think the film's sort of embarrassing in some respects, but it couldn't have been any other way. We had to make something that way because that was the alternative way of doing things. You couldn't have voiceover, you couldn't have presenters, you know, because. There was plenty of other things doing that. There was the South Bank show on 26 weeks of the year. It's unbelievable to believe that. I think that could happen now. Um, uh, and, and Arena and Omnibus and all these things. So um, as long as it was unusual, you could get away with it. And the prison was perfect, actually, per- a gift for doing something unusual. You, know, you couldn't make a show like we made about man in a suitcase. wouldn't work or, you know, it just wouldn't work. But because... I mean, I, I wrote to Patrick. You had to write to people in those days. It wasn't even fax. Um, I wrote to his home, you know, which is odd to think now. And um, I think, I don't, I never kept that letter. I don't know why. I never got a copy. Um, so I don't know why he agreed. He, uh, it was probably a mistake that he did. But I know one thing I did write in the letters. I promised him that we wouldn't in any way take any of the magic away and that we wouldn't we weren't looking to answer all the questions we weren't going to sort of unpick it and analyze it in that boring way and i think i, I thought we succeeded in doing that um, but um maybe in not the way he'd hoped but i think it was the promise of we're not going to say this equals that and this means that um was what attracted him to it the, the promise of keeping the mystique going did you think that he would actually take part when you first sent this letter or do you think well many people have asked him and you know and he just I thought he down. wouldn't I thought he wouldn't and it wasn't a condition I said we're, obviously we're going to try and get McGowan but there are lots of other people to talk to um, and because I might forget to say it later I might have to say that's no, not directly related but you know it took me a while to realise that inte- you know t- intentionality doesn't mean anything what, what he thought he was doing that's his business you know and you think you're doing something and actually you're not you're doing something else and also because and it's important with David Lynch actually is that you once you've made something and you release it into the world, you have no control over that thing. And it's very important for Lynch and it's very important for Patrick. I think Patrick had, you know, he had no control over what was going to happen. It, I think he found some of the fan fandom stuff frightening, a bit frightening. But I think that's just proof that what he'd done was really good. But he hadn't, you know, he was puzzled. He was puzzled by the anger, the anger, literally, of, of after fallout, the kind of, you know, all the stuff that happened. Um, 
but because he had genuinely overestimated his audience, you know, and, and he'd angered them. And I think he pretended, he sort of quite liked that anger. And I think he liked debate and he liked to fight. But I think he he underestimated the power of his own work, so he underestimated the response. Mm. What he thought about it, of course I wanted to know. You want to know, David, tell me really what that means. Or Patrick, tell me what that really means. But I, you have to get over that, really. I got over it a long time ago. It doesn't stop you wanting to know. Mm. But what they intended and what came out, you know, it's up to us to decide what that means. That's some. That's another role. And often, what people think they've done isn't what they've done. And sometimes the answers are really banal. Actually, and you think, well, that's not very interesting. I mean, I've heard critics say more interesting things about that, or just someone who you might think is just a mad fan mm. has a more interesting take on that than you do. And I think maybe. You know, so I don't think Patrick really wanted to say what it was about, and he might not have even known. I think he did know actually, but I think there was stuff he couldn't talk about. I think it was all very, um, you know, it was it was rooted in a very tortured kind of personality and a lot of Roman Catholicism and a lot of strange stuff, probably. Given the lag between the end of the series and when you approached him about um, making this documentary, do you think that he felt that maybe? it might have been now the time when he could start talking about it. I think he wanted to, you know, it's funny, in, in the documentary, you know, I hadn't, I say that I haven't seen that thing he'd done in, in, in a, for Canadian television, where he talked quite openly, actually. But I think he knew that was in Canada, and no one would ever see it, as we didn't until YouTube emerged, finally. Um, but anyway, he was rather flattered, probably, that, that the audience were people who were studying the Bristol University in Canada, something that angered George Markstein like crazy. I mean, I remember George Markstein saying to me, can you fucking believe it? You know, they're studying it at university. How ridiculous. <laughs> um, well, it is ridiculous if you're basically a spy man, a spy man. It's not ridiculous if you're kind of, you know, if you have more philosophical kind of concerns. Um, but he, I think he spoke in Canada because he thought no one would hear it. I think, you know, he, he did want... To to uh, have some kind of come to terms with this British audience because, you know, he did have this messianic complex about that they, if he ever came back to Britain, they would crucify him. A well-chosen word, not a mistake. Um, so I think he wanted to come clean. I think he did, actually. Um, that's not necessarily a very interesting thing. I mean, when I did the two one-hour films with Dirk Bogart, you know, just a few years before he died, Dirk was the same. I think he wanted to He'd been so horrible to so many people, genius that he is. Yeah, I think he just wanted to come clean. He just wanted to clear the slate. And I think he probably thought he didn't have very long, which he didn't, as it turns out. And he never went on camera again after that. So, But that sort of coming to, you know, that's not necessarily um, that going to produce any interesting material necessarily. But I think he did want to talk. And I think when he saw what we'd made, he realised that had been a mistake. And I think after that, he didn't really want to talk. He rarely did after that. I think we probably contributed to a lot of people getting turned down. It's unfortunate. We did let him down in a peculiar way. We didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. But it's easy to let someone down who's got such high expectations of everybody, not least of all themselves. How did it feel when you were shooting um, that original interview in the empty house? Because it's really odd to watch the footage now. There's a strangeness of being around you know, bare shelves and empty cupboards. It's almost like a kind of I know. trick house, like a village house. I know, yeah, I know. It's weird. I didn't, you know, I was so nervous and I was so, um, um, 
I was a mixture. I was so excited and greatly frightened. When he said, oh, I have a friend, you know, I have a, a friend, he's, he's away on holidays and we can film in his house. I just accepted that. I just thought, well, that's great. Obviously, that, when you look at it, even when we were there, I didn't realise it. That's not true at all. I mean, that, I think Joan, lovely Joan, who had never met his wife, was in real estate. And I think she had the keys to a house that was being sold. I mean, I, so that right there was weird. Because it was not, it was weird. It's all beige and there's nothing in it, really. So, um, so that was the neutral ground. So it was odd anyway that we had to kind of meet in this place, which seemed very strange. I was really, really nervous. And it was clear that um, the American crew that we'd hired weren't really... I mean, you can see from the footage, you know, they didn't really know what they were doing. I didn't know that. I didn't know. I knew nothing. So when I look at it now and I see shadows falling, boom shadows, and then they can't even light a shot, you know. So that's shocking. I, I had no... I didn't choose the crew. It wasn't my job. I was just doing the interview and I was the sort of lackey. Um, so they couldn't technically do it very well. They couldn't record very well. My director, who I kept was you know, from here and we went together, uh, abdicated virtually within a, uh, 15 minutes. I mean, when he realised that Pat was going to run the show, he just abdicated. Um, and he just let Patrick do whatever he wanted. and I, So that was a bit shocking for me because I thought, well, I'm not the director. What do I do here? I'm just always going to sit there and ask the questions. I've got a director who seems to have just abandoned any hope of doing anything. I've got a crew who, who, who are losing their mind because Patrick would say, well, OK, now we're going to move the camera here and then we're going to do a pickup shot and I'm just going to walk. And the cameraman is thinking, no, we're just doing a sit-down interview. I mean, we're, not, we're not orchestrating a kind of drama but Patrick kept wanting to change the camera angle and do this, and we'll just do a little link here and that. And, um, so I just saw it all um, coming down around my ears, around me. And actually, as I thought this might be my new career, I just thought, well, that was that's not going to be my new career. Is so I'm going to go back, get the sack, and that will be it. Um, this is not. I'm not. This is not going to pan out because I, I was. You know, sometimes you just need to think, well, even if I know nothing, I know better than these people. <laughs> I, I should have looked through the viewfinder and gone, that's rubbish, guys. Or said to the director, Can, you know, there is a way of dealing with this. Instead of being so timid, I was very timid. And, I mean, I, do, I, produced for, I produced documents for nine years before I even directed because I didn't feel I was... You know, that's just an approach to life. You know, mm. Do it when you think you're good enough and ready. Um, and I certainly didn't then and it just sort of so it was awful and when he wanted to buy all the footage back it was awful that we couldn't do that um, when he said let's do it all again I was hugely relieved actually and, but then that got screwed as well because we you know we went up onto the hill where he wanted to go and then there's a setting sun behind him and he becomes a silhouette because no one's bought any lights <laughs> with him so although I think he was quite generous at that point and quite relaxed and there's one little moment when he's really off guard which you dream of um, hope for um, he, he's sort of you know you can barely see him um, so that's annoying mm. I mean I think when he talks about once upon a time and he pretends he doesn't know what's going on it's a great little moment for me I don't even remember him saying that it wasn't mm. until we looked at it again to do the new documentary that when he says I it's a little, I, I got it out, whatever you got. I, I think there's, there's probably a name for it. I don't know what it is, but I got it out. Think, well, yeah, we know what you're talking about. <laughs> and that's the closest you're going to get, I think, the closest anyone ever got, where him copying to the whole idea of kind of psychoanalysis and um, primal screen therapy and all that stuff he knew about. Of course he knew about it all. That's what he did. He destroyed William McKern and uh, he had to put himself back together again. Um, 
so he, he, he well, that was a relief but even so I have to say that kind of relaxed interview isn't you know mostly as revealing as a terrible one <laughs> so you know I hadn't seen the footage for 35 years so you know as I said in L Street you know I didn't I didn't think we could make anything from it I didn't want to look at it I didn't want to do it actually it was painful I think because I sort of loved him in a way I didn't want to it was embarrassing it's embarrassing it's embarrassing to even say that but I, I, in a way I didn't want to look at that footage and when I did it was as bad as I thought it was and it brought about horrible memories and when you let someone down like that I mean that's no you don't I don't know but you know your first girlfriend boyfriend you know it is a bit like that you think God some, you know I didn't d- deal with that very well or I wasn't a good enough fucker I mean, whatever it might be you know I didn't have enough experience or confidence or knowledge and um, if only we'd met at another time in life, you know. That's how I sort of thought it. He was my first, Patrick. <laughs> you know, and I noticed one of the questions you just asked, well, one of the things you said you might talk about is that, that, so what effect does that have on you? He made every film I made after that much better. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know it. He never knew that. Because he was quite horrid to me, as he was to everybody. But, you know, sometimes people have to, you know, I'd rather someone shout at me and tell me what I'm doing wrong than sort of pretend I'm doing it fine. And he, you know, gave me some, you know, I, at one point I was reading my questions, he just exploded, you know, just said, I don't want to, when, I, when I'm talking, I want to look at you, I want to, don't look at me, don't look down at questions, that's not, I need someone to look at. Don't ever do that. And I've never, ever done that, 34 years after mm. that, I've never, ever I write questions out, I either memorise them or I try and find moments where I can do a quick glance down or I don't even look at them. I just don't look at them. Because he's right. You don't, you know. If you've ever had to do an interview by a remote control, I've had to do a few, where I've sent questions to someone who's in the part of Australia to do an interview for. It's, when they come back, it's just terrible. Because you can hear them. Um, yeah, okay, that's not that. So next, you know, and you can hear, you, you think, how rude. You can tell. That the person being interviewed is thinking, what's this? What are you doing? You know. Oh, and they don't, people say mad things. So instead of picking them up on the ne- on that mad thing they said, they just go to the next question. You know, oh, and by the way, I killed my wife. Oh, yeah, okay. So <laughs> next, you know, that's not how you do it. You've got to look them right in the eye. And that's what that was. His, he said, do that. And I've never not done that ever since. Unless, you know, I mean, I remember the first of three times I interviewed Lemmy. I mean, it was quite clear. Whatever you'd written down meant nothing anyway. And my, my sound guy often says, I saw you just chuck the questions on the floor. Like, well, Chris, well, you're grey hair, I can't do that. You know, it's sort of, um, why don't you die here? Um, uh, so it, it, he was my first. Uh, I bene- he, I, everyone else benefited from him being my first. And then, you know. Uh, it didn't prepare me for some other people I don't know but it, you know it, it's I owe a lot to him for that in effect actually it's a shame you know he was just with an inexperienced person who couldn't do the job properly do you think that when he saw that things might be about to unravel or, or easy to exploit do you think it was in his nature to want to take control and see whether oh, he could totally. exploit that and, no and, totally yeah. totally I, I, you know I think he was trying to help me he was trying yeah. to make a better thing yeah. Yeah, we're all after the same thing to make the best film possible yeah. so when he saw weaknesses yeah. you know you have to move in I mean I think he did it on The Prisoner you know yeah. when he saw you know people go on about that 
directors getting sacked well sack them if they were like mine sack them mm-hmm. um, tough if you could see if it's not happening right we've got to make sure this happens right might be inappropriate certainly was inappropriate in those days for the actor you know I don't think Roger Moore I see Roger did direct a few episodes of The Saint but I don't know what, in what how he did mm-hmm. that or what that really means but you know because it was seen as inappropriate I think and also because he had ambitions for television. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bigger things here. You know, it's not... For Orson Welles to say as late as 1969, or McGill would have been you know, one of Britain's best actors if he hadn't been grabbed by television is so dumb uh, as a co- comment. I mean, because in those days, I guess no one had... It's all ephemeral, right? It's telly. Oh, look, we got Pink Floyd on top of the props. Let's wipe that tape. Let's wipe that. Let's get through the who and registering who. Away. Let's throw that away. Let's, let's destroy every episode of uh, Not Only But Also. I suppose no one really thought about television as a serious thing. I think he did. Mm-hmm. I think he was a prophet in that way. I mean, he was. But television, not like Jonathan Miller deigning to do a version of Alice in Wonderland for the BBC. It's not like that. It was like really ITC, ITV, blue grid entertaining television mm. with ambitions that's I don't I can't think anyone's ever done that mm. actually since that's why it's such an important thing you know he, he under the guise of John Drake and all that kind of stuff which I think he sort of enjoyed in a way I denied it all but mm. you know why did he use the publicity shot for Danger Man as his shot in the prison why that's a that's a that's just a, a mischievous mm. So he knows what he's doing. He can slide in. And he's got all oh, that baggage, lovely, and we can do something that's really not that. And we've got a guy who's stupid enough to give us the money, who loves us so much, he'll give us the money. But you know, he understood the importance of television. But te- that was his, you know, his uh, destiny, his palette. You know, that's what's so great about it. I think it's someone who very early on saw how it was and now god he'd be laughing now right all these awful movies two-dimensional boring movies and all this great television with every decent actor of any worth wanting to do television why would you want to do movies you know i mean you can you can do something like and i've just been watching something on netflix called godless i mean it's Mm. gobsmacking it's gobsmacking i mean jeff daniels jesus christ when did he ever get, get his teeth you know it's just so great now but all, I think he he knew that he knew how you know, it would be, um, and so for that, that's I think that's why lots. That's why I couldn't get it out of my mind. You know. Do you think he actually also anticipated the idea of using television to do slightly long form but but fixed length stories as well? Because yeah. he does talk about the idea of it being seven episodes yes, and, and sure. having to go up. But it wasn't like an like an ongoing. Let's do series after series after series. No, you no, saw no. that you could use. I it, think it's you know. exactly like you know it is. And it's like True Detective, and it's like this is the you know there's going to be. He says seven. I don't know if anyone really knows. I think he, yes, he does say seven actually. So there must have been. I suspect actually three of those seven aren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not for me because yeah. they're the rather they're the they're the sort of tub thumping soapbox ones like Checkmate and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean. Uh, I think the, one, the ones I, I mean, once upon a time is the, the all-time great episode, but um, I prefer some of the others, which he might have regarded as fillers, you know, because I think they're mo- they really are more revealing that number six, whoever it is, is a masochist. He can, he can get out. Of course he can get out. He doesn't want to get out. I mean, that's what's interesting about it. He's called the prisoner. It's all about trying to escape. But of course, it's not about. He doesn't want to get out. Actually, he's no interest in getting out. He can get out. I don't. You know, it doesn't make any sense really. 
if he really does want to get he doesn't want to get out he's absolutely a masochist he's absolutely trying to he's in purgatory you know his own purgatory and really the best episodes are the ones where he kind where that's clear and where it's about negotiate you know it's about beating the man that's what I mean I think Hammer into Anvil is a, is a fantastic piece of work you know great piece of casting Patrick Cargill who's a kind of comedy actor and Brian Rick's passes and lots of stupid stuff as a really horrid, I mean, truly psychotic person, evil person, who he beats. It's about beating, you know, it's about beating them at their own game. That's mm. what's so great about it. That's what's so satisfying about it. Mm. And that doesn't make that depressing. I mean, the Americans might have found that depressing that if they saw it, when they saw it, that he never gets out of the door, you know. But that's not, because it, it's, that's not really it. It's about beating them. Mm. Isn't it? It's like being, you know, it's about winning a case in a courtroom or something. Those are the best ones, I think, to me. So do you think also that uh, that's part of the reason why it's stood the test of time as a TV show? It's out of any particular time, and yet its themes you know, resonate even today. Yes, I mean, totally. I mean, I can't, I can't think of another time when, you know, in the film, when, uh, in my film, when Blue Griefer says, you know, he's this guy who's just, you know, just saying, you know, something's going on and I want to know what it is, you know, what's going on. I mean, if you wake up one morning and you are, you, you've decided you're coming out of Europe, or you don't, someone's decided you're coming out of Europe, or you wake up one morning and Donald Trump is president, all those things, if there ever was a time to think, what, the, you know, what's going on? <laughs> something's going on, what is it? I've got, what's going on? Um, that kind of what the hell is going on under the surface is never, I mean, it gets worse, that, I think. So ideas about surveillance, when you think about now, you know, all the things that he found so repugnant and frightening have have, have become true and, and more. I mean, you know, I had a long... I had to put up with a long tirade from him on Santa Monica Beach about... I think that was the year that Americans were... It was... It was you had to wear a seatbelt. And he wasn't having it. You know. He said, I want to kill myself. This I'm not having it. I think it's outrageous. And he said, it was just seatbelts, you know, and the veins are standing up on the side of his neck. And, all about a seatbelt. I didn't drive then, actually, so I didn't manage to be. But um, he was outraged. Being told, I will not, you will wear a seatbelt. You will be safe. Um, so from something as simple as that, but if now, you know, if he was now and people are emailing him saying, you were interested in this, we think you might be interested in that. He would be, I mean, that thing where you have no privacy, you have none, where this country has got more surveillance cameras in it than virtually the whole rest of the world, where, you know, you can't get away with anything, where your personal life is not yours anymore. I mean, all that. I mean, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Mm. And it looked a bit paranoid and weird then, and it was expressed in all the silly ways with kind of papier-mâché <laughs> statues <laughs> twisting around. You know, it's clunky. But it's the, it is that thing. Mm. It's so... Everyone must feel that now. I mean, it must look rather quaint now. Mm. You know, it's not about cordless telephones. So what? You know, it was in Thunderbirds. I mean, it's kind of like um, it's those predictions are rather. But not everyone would. It's just things that you would like mm. to do. You know, like Skype or something. Mm. So, you know, you'd like to have someone come up on the screen and talk to you. you know, oh, that's lovely, isn't it? That'd be lovely. But that's just your artist's imagination thinking what would be nice that we don't have. But those real underlying things about your you know, not having your own life mm. for some reason. As, I mean, I think when I saw it, I'm just being, on a very personal thing, I'd just been, you know, take, ripped out of my home in London and dropped down in Stevenage, Newtown, just the year before. And I think, 
even on that level, you know, I was wandering around this horrible place, new towns in those days, you know, two million, two million acres of grassland. They don't tell you it's all in like two inch strips around cycle paths <laughs> like that. Um, in a horrible place with no friends, thinking, what am I doing here? And I think that sort of, you know, when I watched the series, it spoke, even on that level, it spoke to me, like just waking up in a sort of, a, a supposedly ideal place, you know, don't live in grimy London, live in a lovely new town. It was sort of similar in a way, and I thought, God, this is like the, it's like the village. It's just why I'm liking it because I'm alone here, in this place, and I'm, I don't belong here. Where's my, you know, I've just been, I woke up here one morning. Don't like it. So it adds a tremendous resonance to, you know, every episode starting with him seeing the world, and it's, I know. it's unfamiliar. I know. And how did that happen overnight? I know, but you know, it's a kind of. Well, you know, you might think it was a kind of drug experience if you were old enough or, or at that time, but it's also a bit like, you know, that, that poor Marion, there isn't... I, but I was completely obsessed with Last Time in Paris for all, not for the obvious reasons. But, um, and I went to Paris and I sought out those locations and, you know, I pissed where Marlon Brando pissed in that cafe. And the guy serving the coffees was the guy in the film because they just used to be in the film. I found the apartment. I, you know, I... I, I, I went, you know, I found out a lot about filmmaking that way. When I found the apartment, I realised that they went in door number one, but the lift was in number four, and the actual apartment was in number six in these in these buildings. So I, I, you know, in being an obsessive about that film, I kind of worked out how filmmaking was done, actually, piecing together. That's only to say that the thing about the prison is, Portman, it's just that one place, you know, it's just that one place. I mean, uh, Twin Peaks is North Bend and Snoqualmie it's a few places and even more later on but there's nothing I can think of that's like, but it's just that one place you can actually just go to that one place and get the experience there's no barely you know I mean there are a few London locations but you get the you get the you get the experience in that one place it's not anywhere like that even though the telly's littered with kind of Shows that are called the name of the place, you know. I think whatever it is, whether it's Dallas or you know, or, or, you know, there's an like obsession with place names. Mm. I guess we have them too. Coronation Street, maybe I don't know, doesn't quite work for me, but um, you can get the prison experience from that one mm. place, and that it's impossible to think of it without that place, and vice versa. It's just uh, that was, you know, one of those unbelievably fortuitous things. It's a, a lot of the experience that place. Even now, you just can't not feel mm. that, you know, can't. It's weird. <laughs> Strange. Um, so what triggered you, well, aside maybe the 50th anniversary for you to return to that original yeah. footage and come up with uh, the idea of In My Mind? Well, it was um, literally, I just got called up by a network who had acquired all, you know, they were heading up to, up to the 50th anniversary. They'd, require, they'd acquired from the Illuminations, the original production company, all the, all the footage. Um, and they just said, "Do you think there's another? Um, you know, can you re, could you reimagine it for the fiftieth anniversary? Because we want to do something that's either exclusively or primarily from Patrick's point of view." And uh, you know, I lied and said, "Yes, I think we can do that." They sent me the footage. I didn't look at it for a few days. I did. They said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Yes, we can." I still didn't believe it. Um, so I wrote a kind of treatment. So I did it. Actually, I did it because I thought I owed it to hit Patrick to try, have another shot because if you if you get another chance if you get a chance to redo something mm -hmm. like do a do a relationship you screwed up or whatever 
do it. You know, take try and make it better. So uh, I did it, but I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was really possible. But you know, I just went along, hoping it w- would be possible. Mm-hmm. And even when we were in Port Marion doing the drone shots, you know, I still didn't quite. Re- I didn't know how this was all going to fit together. All I know is we, you know. I thought, let's do that, because no one's seen Port Marion like that. We've got unique access. Patrick just had all these clunky 35mm shots from a helicopter. Just imagine what he could do with a drone. I mean, that would have been a, such a godsend to him, especially about something that's about surveillance and never having, you know, having some snooping on your water. Let's at least do that. But it was part of a kind of long t- a long, a long-term bluff, really. I mean, I know maybe the network don't even believe me, but it's true. I, I mean, you... You have to do a lot of bluffing sometimes, and I still didn't quite know what was going to happen. So I just pieced all the bits together, Catherine, and so we got all the stuff together, and we went into the editing room. We had eight weeks to edit, and I, on the first day even, I didn't know what was going to happen. I just didn't, and it's it's frightening. It's exciting, but it's frightening, because you can't tell anyone that, because they'll just go, what are you talking about? We're paying you money to do this. I mean, it's not... What do you mean you don't know what you're going to do? But um, then... Uh, it just uh, I think the f- during the first week of, during the first week of the edit I got up one morning and it's just like it, it sometimes happens that way thank God I just suddenly thought ah oh, and I thought how we, how we were going to do the Huntley Hotel sequence that first meeting with Patrick mm-hmm. and once I got that then we were off you know it was just how are we going to do it how, am I, how we didn't there's no outtakes of all the awful things that happened how are we going to talk about them what are we going to be looking at so um, and suddenly that was clear how we might do that but that was, I, that was uh, uh, I don't know if that's lucky, but it happened that way. And actually, again, it's a bit of an overlap, because I remember David Lynch saying to me that when he, you know, he'd just done a razor head and some shorts, and he, he came over to do Elephant Man, and there were all these horrible kind of English actors <laughs> giving him a hard time. Who are you, a young sort of American cult director? I don't know who you are. Um, how he was terrified because he didn't know what he was going to do. And of course he describes it always the same way, like a wind or something, but you know, how he was at the Whitechapel Hospital or something, and this wind, whatever. But I know kind of what he means. He means he suddenly thought, oh, he got the first signs that he could make a film out of this. But that was way down the line, you know, after he'd committed to doing it and casting. So uh, sometimes it's not clear. Actually, that's not a bad way to work. I mean, I know lots of directors, and I despise the way they work, because... They write it all down. This is what's going to happen. And they have kind of spreadsheets, even. We will talk to... I've seen these director's spreadsheets, amazing things, where they just say, we're going to talk to Corporal whatever it is, and he's going to say that. And then we're going to talk to her, and she's going to say that. And then, and it's all sort of mapped out. And I'm thinking, well, I, I don't know why you bother doing it, really. That's what, you've got it on paper. Do a book. I, you know, it films are a bit more organic than that. So, so that was very organic, um, because I didn't really think it could be done, and we did it, and... Um, you know that it, it, I was. No one was more relieved than me. Actually, what the, was your initial feeling actually watching some of the original footage? It was I mean, painful because yeah. it, you know I, I had I had nothing but bad memories. I mean, I'm, and then I went, so when I started thinking about it, I remember lots of nice things um, about it. Lo- lovely chat with Patrick and some fun. But my I hadn't thought about it for so long, and the only when I did, I only could remember bad things. So when I saw the footage, it, it what I did, it sat there on my computer for days, and I couldn't look at it. It was as bad as I thought it was, as as I remembered it. Um, it mostly was exactly as I remembered it. So it was a way of looking at it and thinking, well, without stitching him up, because of course you can't do that. You would never do that. How can we make the painfulness of that um, not 
how can we not make him look foolish? So the t it's more to do with the tone, actually. How do we... How we must be honest about this. That it was sort of our fault. He didn't help, but, you know, it was our fault and we took it... We put off more than we could chew and we underestimated the, the magnitude of the task. We were sort of... Yeah, but not complacent, but we really underestimated what we were up against. So it was just being clear uh, that um, I mean, I went about it as if he was might, still alive, and that I was going to have I was going to have to show him that as well. Luckily, he isn't. <laughs> but um, so that it had to be. Um, it was a way of judging the tone, I think, and, and, and pointing the finger where it really needed to be pointed, which is was sometimes at him, but it was mostly at us, actually. So you also mentioned uh, just now the the drone footage that you featured yeah. in Port Marion. It's wonderful. It makes yeah. Port Marion yeah. look beautiful. So when did you actually do that? How long did it take? What was it all? Oh, well, we used? only we we went in June. Um, I got a drone crew. I have a friend uh, who works in feature films, and she she just done uh, work with this crew on a David Hare movie. Um, and she said these guys are good, and so. I, I, she's a good friend I trusted her we, we met them on that morning or the night before um, two amazing guys if they'd have been younger they'd have been sperm I mean one's about 23 I don't know <laughs> I mean uh, they didn't know the prisoner they'd never been to Port Mary they knew nothing about it um, which was good because they weren't sort of contaminated by that um, but they were amazed by it of course so, and we had kind of absolute we'd been given total access which is actually quite hard to get and it may be impossible only because of the 50th and because of network um, and because of legalities with drones, because you have to have a pilot's license and everything, you can, they could only, you have to be, can't be closer than 30 metres to a person. Or anyway, there are, there are distances. Mm. So they said, well, you, so you got from seven in the morning till 10, at 10 o'clock the tourists come in, the day, the day people. So you have three hours. So we had three hours. That's enough, that was enough though, actually. We shot like crazy. Two residents complained. Um, <laughs> that I think the people at Port Mary Hotel were very, you know, very nice. They were on, sort of on our side, and, uh, um, but you know, people look at their windows and they think you see a camera flying by. I suppose it's understandable. I don't know. I, I don't think so actually. But so we had the three hours just to do it. So, but we we met the night before and we I took the guys around the village and said, well, these are the important things. We need these. These particular buildings mean something, and these locations mean something. And you know, we've got to, you know, and you have ideas about you know, coming out. What's so amazing about it is that now with a drone, it looks like God's crane. I mean, it's so steady; it can be up in the clouds and you can tilt down. I mean, in things that would have been impossible, absolutely impossible. You think how, how is that possible? And then, so you can really see how weird it is—the way it sticks out on, on in traumatic bay like that. It's really very strange. So I just wanted it to look, it was a very simple idea, how can we film it in a way that's like, you just sort of gasp, because that might be how it looks, it might have, might have been how it looked to him when he first mm. went, you know, like, my God, you know, I mean, just that like, wonder. Mm. Actually, you do get, anyone you get, you get there and you, you think, my God, look at this. And because your brain does all this work and your eyes, are, a drone only really just is a, it's quite, sometimes just a good way of, although it, it, it looks kind of um, high-tech, it, it actually sort of just is like you sort of perceive things, actually. You sort of are all over it, aren't you? With, you know, it's not sort of static shot. I do wonder if, you know, if the prison was being made now, I'm, 
it does feel like drones would have been used very heavily. Oh, I know. I, mean, I didn't see the re- I didn't see that awful thing that they made. I never saw that. I couldn't face that. I mean, on the whole, I think just leave it alone. You know, don't yeah. mess with it. I mean, every time something came up, I would be horrified. You know, oh my god, what? Because he did um, Braveheart, and he was so brilliant. You know, and that Mel Gibson was thinking of doing a remake. Mm. I mean, he's thinking, oh god, no. Um, let, let, let's that not happen um, every time you know, you know there's talk of Ridley Scott still doing it I think you know, leave it alone uh, just leave it alone I don't you know it seems a silly thing to play around with I don't you'd have to do what David Lynch did with you know Return to, you can't don't you've got to re, really rethink the whole thing in, in which case it won't be anything like that hmm. I mean I, I had a, for, for a while there I had a little kind of scheme of my own because I was, I was looking at Catherine in Port Marion and I thought, I know what I know what I'd like to do. I'd like her to wake up there one morning. I mean, there would be, and we'd do something about a kind of almost like a DNA inheritance. <laughs> it would just be, no, we wouldn't even have to reference it very much. You just have to know who it is and where they are and then you can weave something else but it has all this sort of baggage. Um, I still might do that, but... Someone else is going to do it now. But, um, <laughs> she might not want to do that, but I just would quite like to see. I'd like to wake up there one morning looking more mystified, like, what am I doing here? But just rethink it. And of course, it doesn't have to be a bloke. I mean, why is it always, why is it, you know, it's banal it's too often. I mean, I don't mean some dumbass thing like Ghostbusters, let's make him three women, a kind of knee jerk thing, but just something meaningful, mm-hmm. like his daughter. Yes. Maybe it was just, in, maybe she inherited something else, you know, <laughs> some weird way. Who knows? <laughs> Just rethink it. Mm. So, so you think it was actually important that you know an aspect of it was how innovative it was, rather than actually what was going on. It was the fact it was a new thing. So, actually, if you were to revisit the idea in some way, the only way to really make it successful would be to make it just as bold and original. Yes, as the exactly. Original. Yeah. Just rethink it. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, so. In as much as this does connect to, to Twin Peaks seriously, actually, you know, if if when Twin Peaks hit, uh, that was like a, a big bang moment for television, mm. however you, you know. So it's a serious big bang moment. So, and we now all live, or we have for years been living in the universe that was created by that big bang moment. So you don't often get a second, you know, if, what happens if you're going to make another big bang moment? You You created the landscape that you're living in and now you've got to do it you've got to do something else so you've got to have another kind of evolutionary moment you know you could come up with something else because you're you've been you've, you've created that the universe and the universe has moved on and in some respects it's gotten better than you could ever imagine um, so you can't it's not a matter of uh, no, that's the new landscape and the new landscape is a much more interesting place than before, you know. So now you've got to top that. Although I don't think Lynch thought in that way. You know, he's, he's living 25 years later. So I think, luckily, all he has to do is he's the same guy, but he's 25 years older, and he'll just keep doing that. So he doesn't have to think, what do I do? What's happened? You know, he just has to do what he does 25 years later. That's the sort of trick, I think. It's not a trick, actually. It's just what he did. And because I think he's about Big Ben, you know, he's about that, you know, he does that naturally. Mm. And I think Patrick does that naturally, uh, did that naturally. He just never got much opportunity to do it after that. Uh, I don't think American, you know, it's all right, okay, you've got a few Emmys doing Colombo and he was good pals with Peter Falk. There's a few things, but it doesn't add up to 
to anything, really. Not much, not much. Um, so he never got the chance because he's so difficult to work with, probably. It's part of it, you know, probably part of it. Who's going to take him on? I mean, what script, if he didn't write the script, no script, you know, he's just going to be going through, you know, not doing that, not doing that, not doing that. Um, we can't do that, can we do that? You know, he's, he's, has too, he's too good a director and too good a writer. He's too good at too many things mm. to put up with it. And I don't know how Stanley Kubrick got away with it for years, but he did. Some, I guess, they decided they'd leave him alone. <laughs> and he got away with things no one would ever get away with. Mm. But he does know more about cameras than any cameraman. I mean, he, he, he could do it. He could tell Lucien Bell, I'll take, I don't want the eight mil, take that off, put the other one on. I mean, he knew. Um, and I think Patrick was too good at too many things to suffer fools, you know. So you've got to find a backer. Mm. And, and Lynch has benefited from having, you know, backing, you know, for a while from France, but from Europe, basically. Mm. There's no American, you know. So he gets, you know, he gets nice people in, in, in Europe to back him. And then when that, well, we've, that's another discussion, but you know, you've you got to find people. And I don't know who at Showtime thought that was a good idea. I'm really glad. David Nevins must be mad. <laughs> and I think they're even talking about doing another one. Anyway, that's something. But, you know, I think that they knew, jumping ahead a bit, they knew that it didn't really matter if viewing figures weren't, or, well, which they weren't. They knew that actually there's going to be a lot of people signing up for that stream, streaming service. Yeah. There's going to be a massive sign up. So that's a good thing right there. And they're going to get all the brownie points they could ever, ever hope for. And they they can look great. They can look great. Like Mel Brooks, you know. He looks great. Mel Brooks, you know, I've never been a fan of Mel Brooks. Except he financed the, David Cronenberg's The Fly and he did Elephant Man. Yeah. How bad can he be? <laughs> and Stuart Cornfield, I think, produced both of those who, he worked, who worked with him. So... That's enough for me. It's like if you're Van Morrison, you're Astral Weeks. It doesn't matter what you do after that. You've done Astral Weeks. Great. I mean, we'd all have to do something half as good as that. You don't have to do anything else. Retire. So we talked a bit about how the public had a very strong reaction to yeah. Fallout, if you can put it that yeah, way. Yeah, sure. It's like a negative reaction to Fallout. Um, do you think that McGoon would have gone on to do something different had the public reaction not been so negative? I think I think he was obviously he was um, surprised by the the, uh, the kind of intensity of the reaction. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he would have done next. Anyway, I think he would have had to take a long break. I mean, I think he must have been totally wrung out by the time that was over. Um, and I think he did want to. I mean, as far as I understand it, he did want to do a film version of Brand. He did want to do this thing about sort of um, 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 the IRA or Ireland or gangsters in Ireland. So I think he did know what he wanted to do next. Both of them film things, actually, not television. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's hard to imagine. It's like, you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix five times so I'm that old. No one goes on about, you know, oh, what would Jimi have done? You know, I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if they'd have left him alone, if the Black Panthers have left him alone, if everyone had just left him alone, my guess is he would have become an exquisite jazz guitarist. That's mm-hmm. my guess. But I don't know. I don't know what Patrick would have done if he'd been given a free. He was never gonna. Um, he would. It would have to be very particular for him. He'd have to have someone like Lou Grade or Lou Grade himself again to allow him that space. And who knows what that would have been? I think that was his statement. I think that was his statement, and it was a statement. It's a kind of evangelical thing. So maybe. I mean, it's true that if you know, you could write a you could write a book about. 
um, English, a British cinema without mentioning him, a book about British theatre, probably without mentioning him, but you couldn't write a book about British television without mentioning him, without having his own chapter. So to me, he's, I, I, I think, you know, for me, he's not a movie guy. And he's done a few movies, and they're all they're quite good, all night long, it's really intense, but um, I, I don't know what he would have done in television, because... I think that's probably that's what he should be, have been doing. I think it's natural to want to go to Hollywood and do that really boring movie, I Station Zebra. God, is that boring? Um, and create problems for the prisoner because you're not there, so you have to come up with a narrative where you put your brain in someone else. Um, but I, uh, I think it would have been telly, but I think that was his big thing. I, maybe he would never have done anything else, and that would have been fine. Uh, that's enough. It's enough. I mean, there were there were so much, many talk, there was even talk at one time. It's so much urban myth around these kind of things about that. They, they were, he was considering doing a series with Alexis Canner and Angelo Musker, just a thing with just you know the kid and the butler on, on their adventures around the world or something. I mean that that could have been all right. Uh, I think it's a it's a, well, the problem, isn't it? Because if you're writing the rules for television, what then do you, what what do you do next? I mean, he did st- really did we. And the weird thing is nothing, it didn't really affect anything after it for, for a long time. Mm. I mean, I, just, I, I suddenly thought it was a naive kind of fifth form or whatever. Oh, there'll be lots of interesting things now. And I thought, I'm going to see the next thing that ITC does. But it was like back to square one. I mean, apart from the champions, which was a bit sort of weird. And Randall and Hopkirk deceased because one of them was dead. It was a bit weird. But they weren't weird. They, just, mm. they weren't really interesting weird like the prisoner they were just sort of slightly odd they had this sort of weird conceit but not actually weird in execution but not in the thing no in the thing itself and so it didn't it had no it didn't impact it didn't seem to me it took years and actually it maybe was the kids who saw all that stuff who then got into television who really cemented that influence and it was not not anything for a while but all those people who had been influenced by that then you know took that on board and that's the same with Twin Peaks and a lot of things you know so it, it I, I really don't know what he would have done. I wasn't satisfied by anything after that, really. I wasn't satisfied by by Colombo. I mean, I you know I, I was so happy when I saw him working, but n- nothing ever really did it. I, mean, I suppose because he is essentially Brand, so <laughs> that's him. And then you know, then it's sort of and everything emanates from that that one thing. I don't know how much of that kind of. Oh, well-armed kind of guy who just won't put up with anything you could put up with. I don't, I don't really, don't really know. Been, would have been nice to think. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what his range is. Was what what he might have done. I mean, if I was a director, I'd, I'd kill to get hold of him as raw material, mm-hmm. you know. And I'd kill to actually commission him to write something. He's such a great writer. He's so clever. I think the one thing he was out of whack with. It's really important to the prison. Is all that kind of um, nursery rhyme, fairy tale, Alice in One, you know, that lovely um, kind of fairy tale dimension to it all, mm. which is totally original, I think. I mean, now, you know, how much Ken Loach and you know, how much of this stuff can you bear? <laughs> miserable people sitting around cloths, just in taped, horrible gingham tablecloths, discussing about illegal abortions because it's 1950s. I mean, you know, I just can't bear it. It's so tedious. It's all right. But it's all like that. And now good British television is really grim and it's all really real. And 
you know, I don't know, maybe there's a little flight of fancy like Hard Sun, but they didn't know how to deal with it because they're in a real world, so they can't deal with it. Um, I think what McGoon understood and actually was the same with Lynch is that sometimes the things you have to say don't fit well into conventional narrative storytelling. They just don't. They won't. You can't tell them the way you want to tell them. Do you think he understood... Uh, the impact of the prisoner, or did that never really matter to him when he was? I, I think he was. Uh, it's, it's hard to tell because he he t- said to me that he found some of the kind of worship of it and the fandom surrounding it frightening. Um, I think that because he thought that was invasive, because those kinds of people, whoever he, he thought they were, I don't think he was very kind actually in some cases about that, would want to know about his private. It, it was never enough. You know, he'd have to kind of you know be eviscerated to kind of. So he's a bit frightened by it, a bit puzzled by it. But when it was, you know, but he was also, of course it pleased, of course it did. You can hear it in his voice, actually. He loved it, um, that there were warring factions, you know. People trying to kind of claim, which you know is very true, trying to claim ownership of it. And, mm. you know, I think he's, why wouldn't you like it? Um, so I think he's, as ever, I sort of ambivalent about it. Because it was proof that he'd hit, that he'd found something. You know, he'd done something really right. I think what he did really right was a really, really simple idea. Someone trying to get out of somewhere, maybe, and not succeeding, and a kind of peculiarly brilliant combination of kind of production design and location and a simple idea. It's just so, um, you know, it was just so perfect. That kind of it's very simple thing, and because it was so. Like the best sci-fi, it was just, a, it was all like a metaphor, and you sort of knew it, really. Mm. I mean, I think you thought you didn't know it. I mean, when I think, now, why did we, why were we surprised by the ending? I mean, the first show, 30 minutes in, a big balloon comes and squashes it, and then why did we ever think, based on that, mm. that we were ever going to, you know, there's a clue there, this is not going to work out, mm. this is not the normal thing. Mm. You know, there's a clue. So, I don't know what we expected. And I think that kind of metaphor, you know, there's that lovely, any any good sci-fi, you know, it's not about the future, or it's not about spaceships, it's about now, you know, it's, you know, it's all metaphor, it's like J.G. Ballard, it's about now, that's what's interesting about it. There's that great, you know, the day the Earth stood still, when I kind of, you know, if, if someone arrives from outer space, it's basically like now, it's sort of like you're getting too aggressive and the universe says, if you don't shape up, we're going to terminate you. My mate Gort, the robot here, is going to terminate you. Get it right. Well, that's, that works for me right now. You know, we could do something coming down, you know, landing and saying to Donald Trump, you know, you don't stop it. My mate Gort, the robot, <laughs> eradicate you. It's that simple. Sort it out. And um, so it, it's all, you know, on that metaphor level, it works It works beautifully, I think. And I think in the in the documentary, something... I hadn't noticed that the first time around when we did it. I don't think we included it. When, you know, him saying, well, if that end was, was, a, was a con, or, then the whole thing was, because, you know, you have to buy into it. You know, it was, it was always going to be that way, I think. It's just that we weren't used to it. Now, if you've got David Lynch saying there's a good Cooper and a bad Cooper, and, oh, by the way, there's another one now, um, and... That we that's we can work with that. In those days, the fact that number six was number, it was the same guy, it was the same person, just two parts of the same person, mm. seemed to be completely uh, unacceptable. Obviously, it seemed unacceptable to people. You know, we can't. What's that? He, he can't be both things. Mm. What? Where are we now? 
And um, but now that thing doesn't, you know, that seems to be quite commonplace now that you would expect, except that you know later on make it literally a, a split, you know, two, two entities rather than mm. the good and bad within your own head. You know, but we're used to all that stuff now. I mean, good and bad, you know, it's all like I mean, if you saw Tin Star, was you know, it was quite good. Tim Roth, another Netflix thing. Now we we have to accept that most people are. He's a cop, but really he's awful as well. So we have to accept that people are. Very bad and very good. They can be both. It doesn't matter about their job. They are both, actually. Sometimes they behave worse than the criminals. Sometimes they, 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 they live by the law. But we accept it's not... that They are... Everyone's kind of both these both these things, which is sort of the same thing, really, except in more traditional stuff, it's just one actor and one character. And in more radical stuff, it's different entities. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of the same thing. Do you think the prisoner actually... Provided some of that template for how we do television. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally, totally, yeah. totally. But it, I have to say, I don't know why it took so long. Yeah. Um, maybe because it, it was seen so unique, and maybe because you needed some some really, you know, some real visionary entrepreneur like Lou Grade. I don't know. Yeah. See, Lou, Lou's big mistake, as far as I'm concerned, not anything to do with Lee, is that he he made that mistake. He started making movies. If you do something really well, like telly. Like Patrick, you know, don't bother with the movies. And actually, it, it, the movie, every movie made was so bad. I mean, it, it got worse and worse. Um, have you seen any of them? They were truly awful, apart from Saturn, Saturn V, was it? Well, apart from one, which is about how the moon, moon landing was faked. Um, they were all awful. He just left it alone. You know, tell us it's all right to do really good <laughs> You don't have to be a snob about it. It's, you don't have to do movies. So you'd need someone of his that that who take those kind of risks to get anywhere, and whether that's an organisation like Showtime or you know ABC, whoever it might be. But they, you know, it's like Mulholland Drive. If you don't, you know, you you will in the end end up with some goon who says, you know, who wants to look at your rushes <laughs> and falls asleep. And, uh, you know, no one was ever supposed to look at rushes apart from poor people who have shot it, have to wade through it because you're just panning for gold. You know, mm. you're looking for that. You know, you're looking for that tiny bit. Mm. The executives don't know that, so they just look at load of load of rubbish and say, "Well, we're not. We're cancelling that because it's so boring." <laughs> so mostly, it doesn't work in your favour. But without those people, I've always been a big propagandist for the studio system, Hollywood studio system, and. You know, good producers and good organisations. I mean, what, you know, I did a film about Paramount Pictures, and what was great about them is they, they, you say, well, there's Billy Wilder over there. We we'll leave him alone because we know Billy will do a great film. Leave mm-hmm. him alone. Let's look at this guy over here who doesn't seem to know what he's doing. Well, we know over there von Sternberg and Dietrich and Charlie Lang on camera. We don't have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. Let's leave them alone. And. The money just keeps coming. Mm. You do a movie, it's three movies a year, and they're all more or less the same, but they're all really good, and you get left alone. We need more of that, actually. In British television, it's really bad now, obviously. You can see the results, but um, more people like Grey who are like, I'm just on, you know, have a. I mean, Grey, he did Sunday Night London Palladium, and he did all that stuff, but he also gave Sir Kenneth Clark his first break in television, mm. his very first break. So he, you know, he. Like Patrick says in the film, he, didn't, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have limited vision. So we need, that's where it starts. We need people like that. Otherwise, no one can do anything. Um, and I don't see much evidence of it. So, you know, if Showtime want to pick up to him, it's good for them. And if, you know, but I, I, I don't see, I can't see any evidence, evidence of it here at all. 
and it's it's funny though you know you put, if you you can tell you pick up the guide guardian guide if that's the what you buy and all the picks of the week are Netflix Amazon mm. that was but no they're not bothering hardly mm. with terrestrial television I mean so it's just different now mm. I remember it's probably about ten years ago now when when Life on Mars started yeah yeah, yeah. and the, the makers talking at length about how difficult they'd found it to get anyone to to even entertain the notion of it yeah because it was a bit strange yeah. and yet you, you look at it now and you think well it's not that strange no it's strange it's nothing unusual no, 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 no. but that wouldn't be out of place now on on Netflix or Amazon no Prime, I mean I don't it. get it I mean I don't want to bash on because I can bash on endlessly but you know when when you get something really good and it was really good like Ripper Street and the writing is beautiful and the ideas are fantastic it's really clever and compulsive so the BBC then say oh I'm not going to do that anymore and it gets picked up by Amazon you know, they do all the R&D they, they, you know as a licence payout <laughs> outrage. that outrages me why do you do all the work set it all up and then go oh I know not enough people are watching it let's just give it to show it second run after mm. give it to Amazon Prime you know, I mean, I didn't understand. I signed a petition to keep that, uh, keep that going before mm. I was to picked it up. Shocking, actually, <laughs> shocking. I and I don't know. I don't really know what you know what's happening in TV anymore. That can happen. It's actually becoming very hard to to find where good television is. Yeah, I mean, anything that exists. I used to do a lot of you know documentaries for what was Friday night on. BBC Four, you could rely on it. Some really good music <laughs> documentaries, many of which I made, I have to say. <laughs> but you know, even that's everything goes, mm. and it's because actually I think you know, exact unlike Lou Gray, most of these people they were kind of just absolute proof that shit floats. The all these terrible mediocrities who were confused. They go, oh my god, people are watching things on their phones. Oh, what are we going to do? What are young people looking? What, what are young people doing? They just, oh, and, and every time they they make a decision, it's all wrong. When they jump, they're confused because of all the platforms and all the. It's not about sitting around on Sunday night at seven twenty-five and watching the prisoner. You must not like that. It's not like seventeen million people that 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 Sunday, Feb Feb second, when we were sitting down, um, having that group experience, you know. It's just different. It's not worse. It's just different, mm. and they don't seem to be. They don't seem to know how to, what to do with that information. Mm. You'd think it would be liberating. Wouldn't mm. it? Every time something comes on, you think it's liberating. Nothing happens. That when those cheap, when the kind of digital digital cameras started, and everyone could be a cameraman, and everyone could make a movie for tuppence. Um, and Miramax, you can't say them anymore. Yeah, Miramax said, "Oh well, we'll have a we'll have a cheap movie budget." You know. Did any did, did anything good come of it? Nothing. I thought there's going to be a revolution. Now it's going to be all these fantastic movies. You know, people not with no pressure of the studios breathing down, big budgets. Didn't happen. I don't know why that didn't happen. And now you know, oh, Stephen was Soderbergh shooting a movie on his phone. And you know, is that going to, it's probably going to be the same. There won't be any good phone movies. I don't know why. Because I've heard that before. Because when that. that that story broke a couple of weeks ago, didn't it? And yeah, then, I think so. But I'm pretty certain that the same thing may have happened about three or four years ago. Really? It's not the first it? one. I mean, yeah. there have been phone movies, apparently. I don't know what they are. I don't see well, them. it gets spoken about and suddenly everyone gets very excited. But actually, in the execution, things become very safe again. And yeah. they kind of so dissipate. Why? You'd yeah. think, yeah. Oh, I could do anything now. Yeah. I've got a phone. I'm there. I just mm. have to find some people. Everyone knows some people. Don't they? Also, you do occasionally get directors who will make a, you know, a 
incredible micro-budget film that becomes successful and then they almost immediately get sucked into some giant Hollywood yeah, franchise machine. I know. And that's it. Like, um, uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, like Gareth Edwards. Yeah. yeah. I made Monsters, which hardly cost any money at and all. And then Godzilla, which is yeah. god-awful. Yeah. I know. And then the Star Wars films. I know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's true, actually, there isn't the middle ground. That's very American, that, where you, you know, you can be like Dennis Hopper and do Easy Ride in 69, or you could be Soderbergh doing Sex Lives and Videotape 20 years later, exactly, where you then, you do something for nothing, and then they give you millions and millions yeah. and millions of dollars. It's not like, well, now you've earned the right to do a $3 million movie. Yeah. So I don't know why that is. It doesn't work, obviously, as a kind of a strategy. I mean, I, when I used to run independent cinemas and distribution, they this guy called Henry Jaglin who was actually one of the editors of Easy Rider one of five and he became a director and um, he never wanted to make a movie over a million dollars ever and so he said if you could give me 30 million and I'll make you 30 movies I don't you know I, that's that's what I'll do <laughs> but then Ray Stark head of Ray Stark unashamedly to his credit actually said how can I embezzle a million dollars from a movie that only costs a million dollars and that's the answer yeah. what, what, what do I get out of it how can I... What am I creaming? There's nothing to cream. Forget it. So it's, you know, it's all that kind of nonsense. I mean, actually, if you look at any of those industries, it's a miracle that anything good ever gets made. It's that simple. It's an absolute miracle, considering the kind of... Uh, all this nonsense. It's a miracle. But actually, Hollywood, despite it being one of the most kind of business-based systems of production ever... Turn them out quite regularly. Mm. I suspect because it's it, it it is so industrial. How has the process of making documentaries have changed since you did that very first six into one? With well, I didn't. You know, I learned a lot from Patrick about how to interview. That's half of it for doing what I do. Um, and so he really helped me with that. Uh, unfortunately, the more I mean, I had lots of good contacts, so it, it became very you know. I, I just I got to know Dennis Hopper really well because I distributed his second film that was after Easy Rider that was buried by Universal in granite. Um, so I knew people. So I just started thinking, okay. So I wrote a treatment for a film like Dennis Hopper and took that to Channel Four, and they said, yes, we'll do that. And so we did. And I knew David Cronenberg, and they said, let's do. I want to do a film about Cronenberg. And they said, okay, let's do that. What, isn't that a lager? Oh, it doesn't matter. Have some money. <laughs> um, so. Uh, it was very easy because I could deliver the talent. That's all. The first time they said no, I couldn't believe it. I had to sort of like, what? You don't want to make that? And, and actually, that's been the trend now. So what's cha what's changed is it was easy to get something unusual off the ground, and uh, it's absolutely is not anymore. I mean, we've gone full circle. So all the things that Channel Four tried to do, they themselves have been part part and parcel reneging on all of it. So you know have to have a presenter who's always on a journey I want to find out you know dot 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 <laughs> uh, you've got to have a presenter it's got to, you've got to have a voiceover or you've got to you can't we never use voiceover that was like we, were we thought we'd been defeated if we do that so I've learnt doing it and in the process but unfortunately my tastes haven't changed so the kinds of things that I like don't really it's quite difficult to get made now I mean I think it's that's that's just a you don't ask for that that's your curse you know I mean, I think I've always been attracted to difficult people like Patrick, like Dennis Hopper, who's really mad. <laughs> like, um, although, you know, not necessarily Lynch, but a lot of the people, Donald Camel, who did that movie performance, who film about him, those kind of people who themselves are attracted to difficult material mm -hmm. and you're attracted to them. And often the people who make 
the kind of material you like, which is a bit difficult, aren't themselves difficult. It's sort of obvious, really. And I sort of like them. <laughs> um, but they're, they themselves can't get jobs. <laughs> I mean, Dennis, Dennis Hopper couldn't get in. You know, at one point he said, I just want to make more movies. Yeah, well, you know, you're, it's not going to happen. They wouldn't take a real... Even when he went to AA and NA and he cleaned himself up, he wouldn't even smoke a cigarette in the end. It was too late because mm. they could see the madness in his eyes. Mm. I mean, he was no fool. He couldn't fool anyone. He was mad. Um, but he's a fantastic actor and a brilliant director and a great writer, actually. So those people, unfortunately, have been people I've been attracted to. And I think that's... You know, I think when I first saw a performance when I was at art school, I was so fucked up by it. I came, I didn't know what I'd seen. I knew something extraordinary, but I didn't know what, how, how it was working or what had happened. I think the natural reaction is to say, well, I want to find out about that. Well, how does that work and why did that do that? So I will have to, I have to find out. So it's like the prisoner. You think, well, why is that? I have to find out why it got past all my defences. And um, why, why does that say, why does it mean anything to me? So, and unfortunately, it's been those, not unfortunately, it's been those kinds of things made by those kinds of people. Why, is that, why does that affect me so much? Why did, you know? And I have to meet, one way of finding out is meeting the people who made it. Or I had some, something to do with it. And you'll get some sense of it, of why it was like it, it was. I mean, when I was a painter, like, you know, which I thought I would be always, there was an artist called Hilton, Roger Hilton, um, there's a whole bunch of painters in, in, uh, down in Cornwall and I was at art school and they said we're going to take you you know we're, we're going to Cornwall and we're going to meet all these artists except this one you know who's a real problem and he's a nutbag and he's a, you know we're not going to talk about him and I met him by accident in a pub and I just I didn't even know who he was and it slowly dawned on me you're that guy we're not supposed to we're not going to be visiting and we can't talk about and I ended up sort of looking after him for a bit he, he he was a serious he's so mad Roger and um, I you know that I thought and that's been a pattern mm-hmm. he was very objectionable horrible man oh, a brilliant artist but he, 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 and I was the, in the end I was the guy at six o'clock in the morning it's a tiny little village called Metallic where they sh- where they shoot um, Poldor I think um, he lived right there and I'd be the one at six o'clock in the morning throwing stones out the window of the pub to get him another bottle of whiskey I thought that was fun um, and <laughs> I you know it's just been a pattern I mean Donald Camel who wrote and co-directed performance was you know I loved Donald he ended up you know shooting himself in the head in 62 I mean he sort of tree padded himself he did it so skillfully he lived for 40 minutes so he could experience crossing over from life into death and um he was that kind of guy. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I, was, I wish you'd say to him, just make more movies, you know, as a consumer, I just want to see more. Um, but he had a big neon sign above his head, you know, beware artists at work. So, you know, he never really got the backing. Um, and although Lynch is a mad like that, it's it's a similar kind of thing. Mm. It's, a, that's, it's difficult to deal with people like that who... I mean, singular vision doesn't even begin to <laughs> doesn't even begin to describe what it is that they don't like. And British television now, anyway, they don't, directors don't have any say now. I, I was lucky enough to be at a time when we did. Now <clears throat> I see jobs advertised. You've got to be a shooting. You've got to do the camera work and direct somehow, and interview somehow. And um, 
and then you sh you generate the material and then that's the end of your contract they have things called edit producers now so you don't even get to edit your own material someone else comes along and edits it because it's cheaper and they don't know the material but no one seems to care so that doesn't work for me I, I, mean, I can't that just doesn't work for me <laughs> so if we ever get to the question what you're going to do next I have no idea because I don't I think something like the, the prison documentary was a, a rare thing and that, that was a extremely lucky that, that even happened they just left me alone but what else were they going to do anyway but they just left me alone you, you don't get left alone anymore so if I ever get another job it'd be interesting to see what happens <laughs> <laughs> unless you can get someone who's sorry I mean, before I did the film with Tom Jones and because it was Tom lovely Tom we, we sort of got left alone because they weren't going to mess with him mm. and we got on really well but that was that, that doesn't often happen they just weren't going to mess with him <laughs> That's the end of that. What was the question? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, yeah. Have you thought at all about what Patrick McGowan would make of In My Mind? Oh, I think he would hate it. I mean, mm. I, I, I'm pretty sure I could sit down with him. I'd love to sit down with him. And show it to him. I think he... Well, he wouldn't hate it. I don't know. He'd probably storm out. He'd probably say, what are you thinking? You know, it wasn't like that. I, don't, I, don't, I don't, wouldn't expect him to like it. And mm. uh, I don't see how he could. Mm. He wouldn't hate it as much as his original one. I mean, hopefully he'd realise it was trying to make amends. But I think, um, I don't know, actually. I think, uh, I'd like to, it would be so great if he, uh, would, uh, if he could have seen it and he'd liked it. But I think that's just delusional. I don't think you can, you can do it. I mean, he's, he, I think he said somewhere, you know, he'd, all, of all the interviews he gave, he only ever thought one was accurate, which was someone from the Manchester Guardian who had interviewed him but hadn't recorded it. Hadn't even recorded it, and he said it was the most accurate. He'd just written on a notepad. Mm. And we have, and we've only got his word for that. There was only one where he wasn't misrepresented, mm. and that was from a guy who didn't record it and wrote it down. That seems highly unlikely to me, but it betrays a kind of you know attitude, I think. Um, but that's were you? Did you go to the NFT? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I didn't know whether to. What says the most to me about him? was nothing to do with the film and uh, I didn't know whether I didn't, I, I didn't even tell Catherine this but we, we were driving along we were driving around Santa Monica and because it was my first time in America I was a real you know was a, and on the other side of the road that's what I mean, uh, anyway um, was a big uh, soft top like Cadillac car and Lee Marvin was driving it right and, you know he, he told me and I went oh my god Lee Marvin look look like a real terrible staff worker. And um, Patrick just freed. He pulled in dangerously, I guess. Just pulled in, stopped the car, got out of the car, slammed the door. And I didn't know, so I just followed him. I didn't, you know, I followed him. He's at the bar. He's not drinking then, I don't think. And um, I came, I thought, God, what? And he just said, that man's got a glass jaw. And, and uh, I said, oh, what? He said, I went to this, we went to this, we were at this party once with Lee Marvin was there and he came up to Joan and do you know what he said to Joan? And I said, oh no, what? <laughs> he said to Joan, how would you like a good fuck? He couldn't even say the word fuck, he had to mouth it. You know, how would you like a good And apparently he'd hit him and broken his jaw. 
and uh, and um, he said, I went, and I went, I found out what hospital he was in next day, and I went to the hospital, and I said, Mr. Marvin, when you get out of here, I'm going to kill you, and uh, the only the only way I won't kill you is if you send a dozen red roses to Joan for every word you said. How would you like a good? I make that seven dozen roses, and he's, he's veined, you know, he's like, oh, it's, it's incandescent. And uh, apparently Marvin did send you know, seven dozen roses and he didn't kill him. But that kind of in- intensity of kind of, um, and I, you know, I, I thought, God, this is this is who I'm dealing with, actually. It's someone who, you know, for, and then I remember the first time, the first question he asked me was basically, you know, when you get married, don't you think it's important to be a virgin? And I thought, oh, I, thought I don't even know you. That's a bit... Heavy for the first question. Uh, yeah, I didn't. You know, I'd fallen at the first hurdle, really. But I didn't let on. Um, so, someone who was fiercely, um, you know, uh, monogamous and f- fiercely principled, but who was a good-looking, highly-paid actor, must have come across so much in his path to bend, you know, to take him off that path and I don't know if he ever did it or didn't but I should imagine it was a constant torment so all that stuff about not kissing women I said all that stuff's absolutely true I know he says in the film I'm not a prude but he's not being prudish it's just you know there was so uh, he was so tortured about all that stuff mm. imagine the temptations and you being in the film and television industry the, the highest paid good looking actor what the hell but believing that all that is sinful. It's sin. Mm. It's absolute sin. And I think, he, you know, that's that's it for me. It's, it's, I mean, they didn't, just, they didn't find all the missing interviews. They did a little interview with him on the beach, which they could ne- the rushes never turned up of that. I don't know what happened to it. But he actually confessed to having been, you know, beaten quite badly at school on a regular basis around the Catholic school. And so it's all that kind of horrible... Uh, I mean, difficult mm. childhood. Who doesn't have a difficult childhood? But I mean, you know, a certain kind of difficult childhood. Mm. And I think he was dedicated to Joan, but I think it must have been quite difficult for him. And I'm glad he broke Lee Marvin's jaw. I mean, Lee, Lee Marvin was a, was a marine, wasn't he? I, mean, I, I like that story. I'm glad he did that. <laughs> um, I think he was an arse, wasn't he? Mm. But you wouldn't want to take him on necessarily. But he did. And I, I don't think he made that stuff up. Just to his, you know, just, it was such an immediate reaction. Just actually, veering off the road, just because he, you know, I'd spotted him. So it was like, well, constantly your innocence getting, you know, you bump into stuff. You think, oh, it's Lee Marvin. Everyone's like Lee Marvin, don't they? And he's a Hollywood actor, great. But no, it was a <laughs> bit like that all the time. Yeah. Just, just blundering into a minefield. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing enough research, not doing enough research. Of course, you'd know now, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. you could just do all that reading and checking up about people. And you wouldn't be quite so unprepared. It's quite hard to find stuff mm. to read in those days. Actually, actually, I mean, Six of One was going. They'd done a lot of legwork in terms of basic stuff, schedules, scripts, mm. shooting day, you know, but not much beyond that. Mm. Not, not much interpretive stuff. Mm. It was stuff for fans yeah. and certainly I suppose it's from an era where, I mean now when TV shows are on they're being analysed from the time they're announced every minute they're on every episode gets analysed I know it's off. amazing now. Um, I know really 
And certainly, I think it would be interesting to know. I mean, it's a, if the prison was on for the first time now, I think it would be picked apart in the most. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I know. I know. It's be, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, I, and also that all the kind of inconsistencies and all the. It's funny, uh, you you know. I don't say even I because I haven't seen it that many times. But when, when it's on, you're avid. You're looking at it. And you you see stuff that they could do because they knew there were no video recorders. It was a one-off. It was a you know there were lots of shots where smoke is going into chimneys. They involve Rover because it's a it's got a reverse mag on it. You know on the camera. There's lots of <laughs> think oh that's so sloppy. But only because we can do that now. Mm. And that was like 7.25 on Sunday night where I was in London. That was it. That was it. And then and then it was kind of nothing but, I guess, what you now call water, water cooler moments mm. after that. Everyone just talking about it. You know, what was that? What happened? How could that be? Um, well, I was just talking to myself because I was talk to you That was it. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw it in colour, how different it was? Yeah, that was, I think that was when, you know, actually going to making the documentary, and it hadn't started yet. We were up against it. And being given this print from ITC and taking it to a tally cine place in Covent Garden and putting it up and coming up on the monitors. And then I thought that colour was amazing enough, but then he could make it, you know, even better, or maybe closer to how it really was. So it was, you know, I, I think I thought I'd seen it in colour. I think most people did think they'd seen it in colour. So it, that was really spectacular. I mean, I, I don't know. We really didn't see it. Some, you know, it's funny. We really didn't. But now, I mean, now when you get, you know, when you're making the film, and you're getting these high, de you know, HD masters, tape masters. Mm -hmm meticulously kind of um, restored but actually frame by frame you mm. cannot believe it mm. I mean even now I'm looking at it even thinking Jesus think of what we were the kind of television sets we were looking at them on the kind of reception we were getting but this unbelievable stuff I'm not sure if it ever really looked like that actually I don't mm. know I don't know about processes anymore mm. I mean I only buy Blu-rays now but you know I look at some kind of Hitchcock films and think did it ever really look like that mm. did North by Northwest ever look that glorious mm. ever it might have done I, or maybe it was never meant to look like that I, I don't know I just love it I, I, you know, I love I just it's gorgeous seeing Cary Grant mm. sleek and sharp and perfect I mean he should be like that he was like that, I'm sure. <laughs> he was always like that. Is it like the reverse of going to a gallery and seeing a painting that has faded and thinking, well, that looks different when it was made, but this is what I'm seeing now? Yeah, I know, I, you know because I, I, started, I, mean, I remember being taken to see a van, huge Van Gogh show. At, must have been on the South Bank, 1969. And the sunflowers and being told that, of course... You know the shitty paint that he used, or whatever, for whatever reason, they're brown now, and they would have been glorious yellow. So it was always a thing about having to understand, you know, what it looked like. And it's a weird thing because there was a guy who, I think, it's a oft um, faked artist Vermeer. Um, when you try and fake something, you know, it's quite difficult not not even for those reasons. you can you can get paint the right kind of paints and all that but it's really what what it looks like in the you know in 2018 sort of you know because things change because of the year you're in you know so i think you can a lot of fakes i think maybe uh, discover because 
of that thing about how we're, where we are now looking at something rather than anything that's particularly wrong with the technique or the kind of paint. It's a complicated business, actually. I mean, I've filmed a, 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 a faker and it's scary, you know, how they can just do it. Here's a you want a material, these are materials, they're real ones. But you just go, you know, and there it is. And actually, I don't know, does it really, I don't know if it really matters. I don't, you don't buy it because it's Matisse. Well, you might if you're a dealer, but you buy it because of that vision, the way it looks. If I could own one, I don't care if it's him or not, frankly. I just want, I'd love some of those things. Mm. If it's made, if it's been done by Emily Dehori, and, uh, you know, I don't care. If he can do it, that's amazing, I think. I'd just love to own some. <laughs> I don't care what's right. I did a film about Warhol, you know, Warhol, or uh, one of the films I did about Warhol, the Art Authentication Board, Andy Warhol, Art Authentication Board, who control the market and don't authenticate things because it's not in their interest and do authenticate things like that. You know, they've got, I made, it was a film about a particular painting. I think it was a genuine Warhol. I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt. They say it isn't. But it's, it's beautiful anyway. So it's just the guy who owns it is annoyed because he thought it was worth maybe $3 million and they're saying it's not worth anything. So there goes his there goes his pension. To me, it doesn't matter. Well, I think it probably was, but it's still a, a lovely thing, and it's a screen pin anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in terms of copying, just think of this funny about you know, David, David Lynch has been responsible for more awful films than any almost any other director because there's there's so much stuff there you can just copy. And, and if you have no talent, even his own daughter did that. I mean, you know, <laughs> sorry, it doesn't work. If, you, if the right stuff doesn't underpin it, you know, mm. it doesn't work. It just looks awful. It's like he must have, he must have been responsible for more awful student films than any director ever. Mm. Let's get a dwarf. That would be weird. Mm. I mean, I don't, you know, whatever. Just no, not really underpinned by anything. Mm. No intelligence or a different intelligence. So, Chris, we'd like to thank you for joining us today to talk about your interest in The Prisoner and your wonderful new documentary, In My Mind. Pleasure. That was released late last year. It's available on DVD, Blu-ray, and we strongly recommend that everyone goes and checks it out. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. like to thank Chris again for joining us it was really great to talk to him he was so generous with his time uh, we had a really fun time talking about the prisoner or about Lynch about Chris's own documentary filmmaking career and what the TV landscape has been like over the last 30 years and as we said right at the start of the episode uh, this is the first of a two-part uh, chat with Chris the second part is more focused on Chris's other shared interest with us which is the world of film director David Lynch and focusing on the uh, recent return of Twin Peaks as well. Uh, and again, there are some really interesting parallels between The Prisoner, Twin Peaks, Patrick McGowan, David Lynch. So the conversation does kind of cover both topics a lot. But that episode, which is part of our Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee stream, which focuses more on David Lynch and Twin Peaks, will be out in a few days. And because it's very much a continuation of the chat, we do occasionally pick back up on the subject of The Prisoner and Patrick McGowan in that episode as well. So we do hope that you'll have fun listening to that one. So for now, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Tally Ho. Uh, please feel free to get in touch, drop us a line or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or find us through our website as well, which is all under the name of our Mothership podcast, Time for Cakes and Ale. 
Yeah, so on Twitter you can find us at TFCAA, and the website is timeforcakesnow.com. But for now, signing off until the next part of the interview in Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Be, Be seeing, seeing you! you.